Welcome to Soul Conversations. We are three Korean adoptees that talk about anything and everything through the adoptee lens. I'm Benny. I'm Shanae. And I'm Kara. And this is Season 3, Episode 10. Today, we are joined by fellow Korean adoptee, Abby Huller. And Abby is a dear, dear friend of mine um, from way back when, back in college days. And she was born in Seoul, South Korea, like many of us. And she was adopted at three months old and raised in good old NKY. She and I also share our growing up uh, stories in Northern Kentucky, but we actually didn't know each other then. So we have a lot of crossovers then. But she's now uh, currently working in sales and video games and collect in the collectibles industry. And outside of work, she continues to learn about her Korean culture, specifically embracing the concept around Jong. She is also a member of also known as, and a fun tidbit about her, and I've seen the fruits of her labor in real life. She's a very precise measurer of ingredients when cooking and baking. And that is, that's kind of the fun fact of hers. And she was making these amazing cakes at one point. I hope you're still doing that, Abby. And we're so uh, happy to have you on. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you all for having me and inviting me on this podcast. Yay! It makes me so happy to see your face. So before we jump into today's topic, Abby, I would love just to hear your perspective and maybe share with our listeners of, you know, where are you at in your adoptee journey? Uh, We have a lot of conversations and a lot of listeners that span from all over the spectrum of kind of just getting started to some of us who are well out of the fog, some of us are going back into the fog. Um, we're kind of all over. So we'd love to just start to hear like, where where are you in, in the journey present day? Yeah, definitely. I I would say I have definitely come out of the fog. I don't know how far. Kind of when I first started my adoption journey, as far as my feelings around it and unpacking that, it was, I mean, Kara was there. It was very emotional. It really started maybe five years ago when Kara invited me to volunteer at a Korean camp for Mm -hmm. Korean adoptees, kind of as a mentor for teenage adoptees. And the first year that I was there, I mean, I was just crying the entire time. (laughs) I couldn't even get through my story. um, I forgot about that. My single birth story. I mean, yeah, it it was very emotional for me, but I definitely have Kara to thank for kind of opening that door for me. As far as my journey since then, it's been very emotional, and I feel like I did a lot of the searching through the emotions by myself. So I feel like it was a lot of just internalized sadness that I had, and I didn't really know who to speak to on it. For me personally, it was very isolating and depressive at the time. Since then, I kind of put it on the back burner a little bit. I do feel comfortable. I did I did go through the birth search, um, found out that my biological mother had immigrated to the US and that was where the search had stopped. And as far as dealing with maybe the emotions with adoption and that come with it, I've kind of pushed it to the back of my brain. So maybe one foot out of the fog, one foot still in it. 
Yeah. I I always think it's interesting when I hear people talk about like putting it on the back burner. Like, what does that look like for you as far as like, was there a moment where you're like, I need to put this on the shelf or it's not a priority or like, how did that happen for you? I don't know if there was a defining moment. It was just for me, the way I'm, I like to put everything in boxes and the best way, it's not the healthiest way for me to deal with difficult topics or difficult emotions, but I do tend to ignore them. And I think that's more so what I've been doing at this time. I've just had other more pressing, I think, things that I've had to deal with that I couldn't really take the time to delve into really that... I don't know. With adoption for me, I can still, it's it's still very much emotional topic for me. Mm. And I feel like if I delve too deep into it, I will kind of fall back into that victim mindset. So for now, for me, the best way to deal with not doing that is to just not address it. That's okay. We won't tell your therapist or anything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. It's like, we have to be like... It's not the healthiest way, but yeah. it's like, no, it's all right. No, no one's, no one's keeping track. And I, I cert for me personally, I certainly have not always had the healthiest coping mechanisms. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think that fits great with today's topic of um, expressing your own suffering in a community that doesn't look like you. I think for a lot of us, we go through, you know, the process and coming out of the fog a lot of times by ourselves. So definitely want to open up the conversation of, how that impacts our friendships and relationships and how empathy plays a role on how we interact with our friends and family and how we share our own story with people that may not have the background or relatable experiences that we have as Korean adoptees. And so I kind of want to open up to the group when we go through those moments of not wanting to talk about it or putting stuff in the back burner Is there anyone in our lives that we really can say, okay, I have one person that I can go to? And what are those qualities that we really rely on to open up to people to really feel trusted and confident that a person will be able to not judge us and, you know, really be safe in that space? I think like a lot of people, I went through a lot of the journey alone. I kept it very, you know, close to my chest and did a lot of internal processing and sort of isolated meltdowns. (laughs) But as far as processing, I have a very close relationship with my adoptive mom. Um, I consider that to be a very sacred relationship. Just I think by her nature, she's always been, she's a very empathetic human being. She's very nonjudgmental. She listens and you know, even if she doesn't necessarily have the right thing to say or like know what to say, She's just one of those people who's able to make you feel supported, even if she can't come to the table with any like tangible solutions. And I think that the reason that I've always been able to talk to her and that I feel comfortable talking to her is that it's never been a conditional relationship, or I've never felt like it was a conditional relationship. And I know that not everybody can say that of their adoptive parents, but I never worried that, you know, oh, if I say this, she's going to cut me out or, you know, cut me off or, you know, I certainly would worry about hurting her feelings. Like I would, you know, approach conversations carefully because I would feel guilty and I don't want to make her feel sad or that she was um, 
did anything wrong or harmful. But I think just having that safety to know that that relationship isn't going to go away based on what I'm going through or what I say um, has been huge. And I can't say that about everybody in my life. In fact, I don't think I could say that about anybody else, quite honestly. Yeah, Benny, you know, it's an interesting question of like, what are the qualities that we look for in those people? And I think for me, like, I don't have a confident answer. Um, Shanae, something you said, like really resonated with me of like, holding it close to chest as far as like, the suffering goes and expressing it. I think at a really young age, at least for me, I don't know about you guys would love to hear what it was like, but I was kind of conditioned early on to keep it to myself. And I don't really remember that there was a specific like incident. I I know I've shared the story of, you know, between my sister and I, who's also a Korean adoptee, you know, the first time I got called a chink, you know, I kind of went down and talked to her and she wasn't in the time or space to really like console me in that moment. And I think I was so embarrassed at the time and I was so confused by just experiencing racism and bullying as a young kid. I didn't know who to go to or how to express myself. Like I wasn't given the tools to have those conversations. And there were certainly times where I tried to dip my toe in it. Like again, again, I can't really think of like specific moments, but I, I certainly remember there being times where I would muster the courage to share how I was feeling. And then it always got, um, you know, returned with the typical, like, you just ignore them or, you know, don't listen to them or be the bigger person. And I was always taught as at a young age that it was actually my place to deal with it. And then my job was then to learn how to brush it off. And I think that is where my relationship with expressing suffering started. And the relationship was it doesn't exist. You're actually supposed to keep it to yourself. You're actually supposed to look the other way, or you're supposed to tell yourself they're just jealous because I'm special or like whatever the hell the coping mechanism was. So I think even to this day, if I had to like describe who the person was that I felt safest with to express that, it would probably be like a surface level answer of like another CAD, like I'll start there. And, you know, I've had to learn even the hard way of it's not other Asian Americans sometimes. It's not other people of color sometimes. It's certainly not other Korean people, but it's like this very specific like within our community. And I think we all know sometimes that doesn't even go down so well. So my long winded answer to that, Benny, is I don't I don't really know or us. And I think I'm still figuring it out. When you said um, they're just jealous because you're special. That was always what I was told when somebody was bullying me or making yeah. fun of me for being Asian or, you know, racist comments, anything like that. It was, that was always the go-to. And that does not, it doesn't help. It doesn't make you feel better because it's still calling out your differences and it's not a response that teaches you how to actually handle the situation. Right. There's such an interesting relationship between the bullying, the racism, And for me, at least, it was kind of this like Adam and Eve moment. I know I use that analogy a lot on the show of like, I didn't even realize it was a thing until somebody pointed out to me that I was different. 
you know, I think if you would have told me prior to that moment of like me realizing I was naked in the forest of like, oh shit, I'm different than everybody. I think prior to that, I would have thought like expressing my suffering was whatever. Like I didn't think anything of it, but it wasn't until the bullying. Like to me, when I started thinking about the topic, like it was impossible for me to talk about this topic without talking about racism and bullying, because that to me is like the foundation of which makes it so difficult. You know, it's it's not like it's inherently harder to talk to white people about suffering. I don't think. I think it's just that we get boxed into the, we ex- not boxed into, but we experience the racism first rather, which then sets up this guard of talking to anyone that looks like that, at least for me. You know, it was like, oh, I tried that once. I tried to tell somebody that somebody hurt my feelings. I tried to tell somebody that somebody, something was happening and I would just get shot down or ignored. So I, I just took it on as like, oh, I guess it's my responsibility to figure this shit out. Well, and I think another layer too is I know at least in my circumstances and from listening to, you know, Kara and Benny and Abby, just a little bit that I've heard about, you know, kind of your background and where you grew up, when we experience those racist comments, often so young as children from white people initially, it's one thing to have other white people involved, whether it's your parents or teachers or whatever, you know, the the quote unquote safe adults. It's one thing to expect them to empathize and understand what it feels like to be called a racial slur, in which case I don't think it's fair, quite honestly, for us to expect them to know what that's like. I don't think there's a direct comparison. You know, maybe if you were talking about somebody, you know, who's like Jewish and a religious minority, you know, that there are there are certain intersectionalities, but it's not so much that we expect them to understand and empathize, but we do expect and should expect and need them to validate our experience and validate our pain. And I feel like by saying, you know, oh, it's because you're so special, like that, that doesn't validate that totally invalidates, right? Because if you think about it, you're saying, oh, you're so special that you deserve to be called a racial derogatory slur. Like that just doesn't track logically. Yeah. I love it when it gets turned around as like, oh, it's supposed to be a compliment. Oh, they're just picking on you because you're so pretty or they're just picking on you because they're jealous of your pretty hair or whatever. And it's like, wow, like, okay, so first I got told I can't express myself. And now I'm even being told it's your own damn fault they're doing it because you're so adorable or you're so special or like whatever it is. And I think cads don't talk enough about how that sets us up for a lifelong journey of suffering. To me, that's the foundation of where my quote unquote suffering, Abby, you talked about this victim mindset, right? As an adoptee, would love to hear you talk about more how that shows up in your life of what it, what, what did your life look like living as a victim, right? Or when you do live like a victim, because it's not like a, a switch, right? But like that to me is the foundation of my victim mindset was being bullied, being gaslit to being told that it wasn't actually happening or was actually a good thing. And then having to internalize and do all of that work on my own, which then, like I said, led to a lifelong journey of suffering, unfortunately, which I'm just now coming out of. And I think this topic that we're discussing today helped show the origins of where some of that suffering started for me. Abby, what does that bring up for you in regards to like your experience sharing suffering with either your family or friends and and even some of that that victim mindset that you were talking about 
I mean, with sharing it with my family, they really, it was hard for them to understand because my family are, everyone in my family is white. So they've never received a racist comment or remark in their life. They've never been discriminated against. So I understand. But it was also met with similar responses like you, Kara, where it was just basically brush it off. It's not a big deal because they didn't know how to equip me to face challenges like that. But it, it definitely made me not want to talk to anybody or not feel comfortable to be able to talk to my family. Um, and I know that it wasn't because they didn't care. I'm sure I would assume that it was hurtful for them too, for their daughter to be treated like that. But for me, it just kind of made me feel more isolated than I already did. I know some cats have this experience too. I mean, we look different from our family. We are different. Growing up in my family, it was kind of ignored that I was different. And I remember my mom always telling me that, oh, you're you're just like all of us. You're my daughter. You look just like me. And obviously, that's not true. So kind of not acknowledging the differences also made me feel more isolated because it seemed like there was this elephant in the room that nobody was talking about. So that, along with not being able to validate my experiences with racism and bullying, was very isolating for me. I didn't feel like I had a support system who I could talk to. And like you, Kara, I internalized a lot of that. And it led to a lot of internalized racism and self-hatred for how I looked and and Oof, especially, yes. yeah, growing yeah. up too in Northern Kentucky, I mean, you know, you want to look, you know, as a teenager, regardless of not, you just want to fit in regardless right. of what that is. But growing up as an, as a Korean girl in Northern Kentucky, where everybody's blonde hair, blue eyes, right? you not only just want to look like everybody, but you want to be the same race. You want to fit in. And it was it was hard. I mean, I think now I'm definitely more comfortable and I'm thankful that I'm different. But growing up, it was definitely very difficult for me personally. Yeah, Kara, what was the fruit that we pegged you as in our recent episode? <laughs> A rambutan. Yeah. yeah. The spiky on the outside, kind of gushy in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely feel feel that uh, related to that, but I also feel like if I was any food, I'd probably be an onion. Not because I <laughs> onions have layers. <laughs> You're so onions complex, Betty. Yes, like a smelly onion. But I, I do think too, when I think about you know expressing myself or the things that I'm going through, I often have certain layers of who I talk to about certain things and how oh, yeah. much in depth. And uh, I think the challenge for me is what everyone has been saying, is this person really going to be able to relate? Do I even bother to bring it up? Because when I open that layer up or peel that layer away, there's no going back and I'm left vulnerable. And that's kind of a scary situation. I'm always fearful that my friends or my family are never going to look at me the same or mm. this person is going to say like, oh, he's just feeling for sorry for himself. He needs to pull himself up. And I right. think that's where, you know, mentioned gaslighting or not even bothering anymore because I don't want to bring attention to myself on this really uncomfortable topic of X, Y, or Z, because what's the point? And Shanae, you, you brought up a good point that it's good for me to remind myself is that 
I necessarily don't need answers from my friends or family that don't look like me, but sometimes the validation is really key for me because I don't want someone to forget that and be like, oh, Ben, you talked about this and you really opened up, but then the next day forgets about it. And I feel always dinged like, I can't bring it up because I don't want anyone to think I'm weak or feel sorry for myself. And I just going to go into isolation and put it on the back burner. And that's where I really think how much do I open up to someone that doesn't look like me? Where do I find that community? And for me, what does the outcome look like? Do I want someone to feel sorry for me? Do I want someone to give me advice or I just want someone to hear me out? And I think that a lot of times is someone just to hear me out and hopefully take that as an ingredient to build our relationship better to say, there's some differences that I may not be able to explain to you, but if I'm feeling down or if I'm feeling guilty, it's probably because I'm internalizing something that I really want to say, but don't know how to express it. The word that I keep hearing come up from all of you all is validation. And, and I don't think that I associated or thought that that word would come up so frequently. So like, like let's talk about that. Like uh, to your point, Benny, like what are we trying to achieve, I guess? Like probably when we're younger, we don't know any better. We're just, we're just looking for, you know, some nurturing, some, you know, some consolation. Right. But I think as we've become adults, you know, that, that need to express ourselves and be seen by people, it probably changes, right. From just being a child that's being hurt to this need for validation. And, and like specifically, let's say what it is like validation from white people, right. Like, Essentially, that's that's what we're looking for at at the end of the day. So I would I would just love to like open the floor of like, what does that validation mean to you all? Like even as a young as you, maybe your younger self, and like what does that look like now? And has it changed? Or like what do you think is at the root of that need for validation? I think as a kid, it was just for somebody to say that what somebody did was wrong. And that I had a right to be upset and that if right. I wasn't upset to point out that I should be upset and I should right. be hurt, like that what they did was was racist and that was a problem. And also in that validation and saying like you have a right to feel hurt, you have a right to be upset that as a child would have, I think, given me the power in that moment to know that not only are they validating that I was wronged, but also validating that I had a right to feel pain. And like Benny, to what you had said, it's not that it's weakness to feel pain or to show that you're hurt and you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and dust it off or, you know, oh, you're building resilience, kid, like it'll serve you well later in life. But as an adult, the reason that I've put so much weight and emphasis on validation is because I have yet to, maybe with the exception of conversations with my mom, I have yet to have a conversation with a non-CAD in which I expressed my suffering. And in the most well-meaning way, whatever the response was or whatever the reaction was, wasn't some form of gaslighting. And I think for me, you know, I would much rather have someone just listen and not say anything in response to what I said, but maybe just give me like a hug or something like that, then try to make me feel better because I think people mean well, you know, the people 
Right. You know, like even, you know, my husband, my friends, you know, they're not trying to like trigger me. Right. But if they go into, you know, there's the comparison of, oh, well, like I know how you feel because I blah, blah, blah. And you're like, right. No, like you don't. Or, you know, they don't want you to be that upset and they're trying to make you feel better. So then they minimize what you went through. And that's equally damaging. I think I've reached a point where I don't expect anybody to solve any of my problems, but like I just need them to kind of sit down, shut up and listen. And that's it. Don't do anything else. But like, that's the best thing that you can do. Or say, you know, I don't understand, but I hear you. And like, I affirm you. I never heard the statement, I affirm you until I entered the CAD space. And those are the only people that I've heard that phrase from. Yeah, I guess, you know, as a kid, validation to me was not being seen, being hidden, being able to fit in, being quote unquote normal. I didn't want any attention to be brought on anything that was Korean for me. And that was, that's a big theme of our podcast. And I think the challenging part is that carries in to my adult with so many different aspects of my life. It deals with my professional life, with my relationships of just being able to feel accepted and fit in. And that's where I struggle of fitting in means uh, assimilating to the community that I live in, which is almost saying to myself, ignore or hide the authenticity of your Korean heritage in your identity. And I think that's the constant struggle. Do I want to be truly authentic and genuine and go through that struggle? Or would I try to hide that and suppress that to be more comfortable in the day-to-day interactions with other people that don't know what I'm going through? Right. Abby, what about you? How does this lack of being seen and this need for validation show up for you? I mean, it's difficult. I spent a lot of my life people-pleasing because I was trying to fit in. And I know that's an experience many cads share. We just want people, you know, people to like us, people to want to be with us, be our friends. I don't know if that stems from the primordial wound of being separated from our mothers at birth or just growing up like so many of us did in the Midwest or predominantly white areas. It's definitely been an issue. It's something that I have to be conscious of every day in my day-to-day relationships and interactions with people. As far as validation goes, as a kid, I think all I would want, like Shanae said, I wanted to be nurtured. I wanted to be cared for somebody to just tell me it's okay. Right. As an adult, it's more so same with Shanae's thinking. I just want to be heard and somebody to listen. I don't need somebody to tell me it's okay. I don't need somebody to fix my problems because nobody else can. Nobody's going to make it better for me. Um, Nobody's going to make it hurt any less. So I think just to have somebody listen to you and hear you and that's it. I don't want their advice. I think that's the most impactful thing somebody could do, especially when it comes to listening to our issues, you know, and experiences with racism. Yeah, the validation piece, it has a direct tie to my self-esteem. You know, it, it, it just like you were saying, Abby, like people pleasing and Benny, you were alluding to it of like this need for like achievements, right? Like it was like being gaslit as a child made me like turn that on. It was like, oh, I'm suffering. You don't hear or see me. So now I feel this constant need to like 
show and prove that I'm worth it because I've now internalized that bullying and that suffering to myself that I now have to prove to the external world that I'm worth it. And it puts me in that constant cycle of trying to prove my worth, even as an adult and like coming out of the fog, even as an adult, like I I share with my boyfriend all the time when I'm having those like self victimizing moments where I'm like, I just have to prove everybody wrong. I got to show the haters that they were wrong. And, And then I take a step back and I'm like, who, who are the haters? Who Who is this said audience that I am so convinced doesn't think I can do it, doesn't think I'll make it out, doesn't think I'll achieve? Like that is a non-existent peanut gallery that I believe now that we're talking about this as a group, see, this is why we have these soul conversations, right? It's good for the soul. That I think that narrative of everyone is against me happened when I expressed my grief And no one believed me. And therefore, I started to believe everyone was against me. And still to this day, at 33 years old, I have those moments where when I feel like I'm slacking or things are too peaceful or I'm coasting, I start to tell myself, I can't I can't let it down because the haters, I can't let the haters be right. I can't let them think that I've I've given up and that I'm slacking. It's just like, no, girl. Ain't nobody watching, ain't nobody trying to like wait for you to stumble and fall. But I do think that that's where the creation of my, my haters started was in this initial, like trying to just express myself to people who don't look like me. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that, Carrie, because I agree with you in so many ways. For me personally, it wasn't so much that everybody was against me, but I think I grew up feeling like There was never going to be anybody that I could count on. It was always going to be me. Someone might come close, but like at the end of the day, you got to do it on your own. And I wonder if that desire for achievement and proving yourself, how that ties into relationships. For me personally, it's that I must protect this relationship at all costs. So if it means that I don't express my suffering or if I feel guilty if things aren't going right. Like it's all my fault. It's my responsibility to save this relationship, even though relationships take at least two, um, that it's all on me. And that fear of things falling apart and then it being your fault because you didn't do enough. You didn't work hard enough or you opened your mouth too much. You didn't open your mouth enough. That constant ping pong in your head and the never ending cycle So I'm curious how that manifests for all of you. Yeah, I definitely feel that too, Shanae. And I think friendships and romantic relationships, it goes down to what's your attachment style? (laughs) And trying to go the extra mile to save something or wondering like, am I doing enough or am I doing too much? It's always that second guessing. And I think about my family and my cousins and my uncles and aunts. Like a lot of times, I think when I was younger, I just wanted to be left alone. I wanted to be isolated. Didn't want to talk because a lot of the questions that people are asking me is how's school or how's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't want to do small talk. I can't do small talk right now. This is what happened, but I'm never going to say it. You know what I mean? And it's just manifested in a way where it's like, I think my relationships with my family and extended family were stunted by the growth because I just 
didn't really express myself at all. And I think that's where I see today too, as well as just trying to navigate all those complexities. I definitely agree with that, Betty. I mean, I was the same way. I felt it was difficult for me to kind of open up to my family and to friends growing up. So it was all of the relationships seemed very surface level. I mean, I have two older sisters. They're biological children of our parents. And I didn't have a very close relationship with them growing up. It wasn't really until adulthood that I have repaired that relationship and really feel like they're truly my sisters. So that definitely resonates with me. And I am currently going through a divorce. Throughout my marriage, I mean, it showed up again. My people-pleasing habit showed up a lot in my relationship. And I had been doing pretty much everything in the relationship to make sure that my spouse loved me and wouldn't leave me because I just felt like, yes, like you said, everything in the relationship is on me. I'm responsible for keeping it intact and doing everything to keep this person in my life. And it went on for so long that I had completely lost track of who I was and what I wanted. And even making simple decisions like what I wanted to eat, what I wanted to wear had become impossible because I had just been doing everything and making every decision in my life based around what I thought somebody else expected or wanted of me. And I did that in a lot of my relationships where I would, it's not necessarily things that they would tell me they wanted me to do, but it was just what I would perceive. I would come up with this image of what they think of me in their head and try to hit all of those boxes to keep that image in their head. And it was totally made up in my mind. Nobody was expecting me to do any of those things and nobody knew that, but I was just doing it because I was so afraid to lose the people in my life, whether or not they were meaningful or healthy relationships. I resonate with that so much, Abby, and it just like hurts my heart as a CAD and as someone who can relate to like, and I hope if anyone who is outside of the CAD identity who's listening can can see that like, like you were saying like what I want to eat, what I want to wear, like these deep childhood recent experiences have deep and long lasting implications on our life where simple things like you were saying, what do I want to eat? What do I want to wear? How do I present myself becomes a complicated task. And again, it's not to be like the sob story or woe is me, but it's it's more of like what this whole movement that we're participating in is is trying to do, right? Like we as a part of this collective movement of us as adoptees and Asian American adoptees taking up space and sharing our narrative of our experiences is, is real and it's different and it's specific because it shows up in ways that isn't fair. You know, I get that childlike mind where I'm like, God, it is just like not fair that we were told, and in this word that I'm underlying my notes here and you guys share is responsibility, right? We shared our experience at a young age with people. We were gaslit, not just gaslit to be told what your experience isn't real, but then actually the responsibility was then put on us to figure it out or to make yourself feel better by telling yourself this positive narrative or whatever it is. It's your responsibility, essentially. Thanks for sharing. Not my problem. It's actually your problem to figure out. And I think that for me, at least, was at the very young age where I realized, oh, it is on me. It is on me and no one's going to help me. 
And then to your point that we're making here, and then it spills into every single relationship and every single interaction that I have is that it is my responsibility to make sure everyone is feeling good. It's my responsibility not to rock the boat and not to bring up things that make people feel uncomfortable. It's my responsibility now to ensure that the relationship has longevity because if I do something wrong, it's my fault which I know that we had talked about this as a topic too, then leads into the shame and into the guilt of not just being different and having feelings and not being grateful all the time, but even having shame and guilt for even existing. And that is not a great or easy thing to sit with, especially as an adolescent. And especially when you don't realize that that's what you're going through And I think that's what so much of coming out of the fog is, right? Is you now reflecting on your childhood experience as an adult to say, holy shit, I was put in some really unintentional, I will use that word just like everyone has shared. Thank you all. That's what I appreciate about this group is y'all keep me positive. This unintentional thing that happened to us where people were trying to make us feel better, but what they were actually doing was asking a child to be responsible for other people's irresponsible remarks and behavior. Hence, cue the people pleasing, cue the staying into situations and relationships in which we should not have for longer than it than it should be because of that need for validation. I mean, we're just covering all the things, right? Like we're covering suffering, we're covering gaslighting, we're covering validation, we're covering shame and guilt. And it's it's not meant to be like a heavy episode, but I think that those things in hearing you guys talk about it so vulnerably, thank you all just shows how much these things are like interwoven. And I would dare to say, here's my hot take for the episode, is at the core of what the adoptee experience is. Mm -hmm. Adoptees are a unique group of people who basically out of the womb, we are branded as people who are essentially needing to live our lives for somebody else in order to survive. That's how our narrative, Oof. that's how the universe sets us up to exist, right? By the there practice of adoption, and we have no control over it. It was non-consensual. And then in all facets of life, I feel like you can tell where an adoptee is in their sort of journey out of the fog and journey away from the people pleasing and all of that by asking them, like, how deep is your contingency catalog? Do you have contingencies A through C? Do you run A to F? Do you go all the way A to Z? And how exhausting that is. The mental load, I feel like if we could have a visual of any time any interaction happens with another human being, how that computes. Does it go well? Then maybe we delete a couple files from that contingency catalog. But then the second that you have an interaction with somebody that either doesn't go as you expected or reinforces the things that you were so terrified of happening, it's not like a one-to-one exchange, right? It's not, oh, that was one thing, so one more contingency gets added to that catalog. It's like a one to 10, right? And then, you know, I'm also curious to know, how do you all manage relationships when people have, I wouldn't even go so far as to say like burned you, but that second that you were dinged, How do you process that? Are you uh, like, oh, you're out, like doors closed, never going back? Are you a glutton for punishment? How do you navigate that? It's either doors closed and never coming back open or 
you think about it, it's like, oh, should I apologize and <laughs> make it my fault because I'm a people pleaser? Yes. I, it, for me, certainly it was those extremes. It was like, oh, can't trust you. You're not safe. My little adoptee antennas are going off and I have to completely write you off. And there were certainly relationships in which I did that to this day that I regret. And I don't use that word. I don't use the R word very, <laughs> um, very casually. And there's not a lot of things that I do regret in life. But when I look back on it, it's certainly the people that I had no grace for at the time because I was in such a hurt place um, that I had no other option but to cut them out. And to your point, Benny, I've certainly swung the extreme the opposite way where I've just completely put it on myself, you know, especially in romantic relationships for me early on. It was like, I, I just found myself in these relationships where it was always like, you're so emotionally damaged or like, you're so fucked up. You know, like those things got told to me in romantic relationships at times. And I took that on as an identity and, and, and piled onto the responsibility, right? Like the, the, the responsibility that we were given as young children to console ourselves. And then, you know, it turns into this hyper independence that a lot of adoptees have. And then it's like, then you add it into the relationship piece. And there was certainly a point where I blamed every failed friendship and romantic relationship on myself. And it continued to chip away at my self-esteem because it was like, you keep fucking this up. You keep dumping your problems on everyone, whether it be friends or family or, or, or significant others. And you push people away. And, and then it put me back into that cycle of closeting myself and keeping to myself and keeping it all cooped up where I just never was able to find a way out. And, you know, I'm still not getting it right. And, you know, and Abby, you and I even have gone through that in our own friendship. And Andrew and I, uh, Andrew Murphy, when he was on the show, it wasn't quite as intimate because we just didn't know each other. But certainly even when you meet other cads and you're not on the same page, it even makes it makes it difficult to even interact with people who are even coming from the same space as you. It, it just shows you like it's a damn miracle, I guess, is what I'm saying for cads to get and to line up with relationships in a way where all of this adoptee baggage that we're talking about validation, internalized suffering, gaslighting doesn't get in the way. And that's again, here I am victimizing ourselves, but that's some of the unfortunate piece of it that I just, I ache for our community sometimes. It's like, we can't even have normal relationships sometimes because all of this really heavy stuff gets in the way where something that should be as simple as having a friend isn't as simple because of all these things that have happened to us up to this time. And, and there's a friend that I have now She's Asian and she moved to America and we, and we got really close and, you know, we went on a trip together to her homeland and, and, you know, she was making these comments of like, oh, you're so American. And like, that just rubbed me the wrong way. And I, you know, at that point I basically cut her off and she was one of the best friends I had had in my life. And it's a relationship. I look back on it. I regret immensely that I basically cut her off because I didn't have the tools or the resources to, again, express my suffering in a responsible and eloquent way. So my only coping mechanism was to completely cut people off. And I realized for some of, of those relationships, it's too late to go back. 
And but for the certainly the spaces in which I mean, you and I are a perfect example of like, I felt this safeness, right? Of like, maybe we can re-meet now that we're on the same page, you know, because Abby and I met when we were like very young, we were in college, you know, didn't feel like we were young at the time. We certainly felt like we were adults, but looking back on it now, it's like we weren't on the same page. So trying to relate to one another, even with our CAD status was impossible. And it makes me sad for myself. It makes me sad for our community because I think a lot of us are are yearning for relationships where a lot of this junk just gets in the way. Yeah, it's almost like we're all yearning for connections and relationships and healthy relationships, but it seems so difficult to achieve. Yes. It feels impossible. You know, it's just like we have every odd stacked up against us and it makes relationships incredibly difficult, which I think is a theme among all CADs is that friendships, romantic relationships, and even with one another, it becomes a complicated dance of like, where are people at? How much have you been gaslit? How comfortable are you expressing yourself? Where are you in the journey of coming out of the fog or not coming out of the fog? Like I said, like it's a damn miracle that any of us and even the four of us are here, you know, coming together and being able to have these like really vulnerable conversations without stepping on each other's toes. And I'm sure it still happens, you know, and, and in true CAD fashion, we're always like trying to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes because that people pleasing is so deep in us. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear what this group's experience has been maybe as we wrap up the episode and as we start to like give some food for thought to our listeners, how have you guys broken some of these cycles of being gaslit as a child, of not being validated from expressing your grief to a community that doesn't look like you, from people pleasing. What has been your journey or tips or tricks or keystone, you know, moments in your healing journey in which you've started to combat those things that have happened to us and and fight back? Would love to learn from you guys. Carrie, you know you asked a good question when everybody just sits there and doesn't say anything. <laughs> I'm like, shit, We're maybe, like, maybe uh... none of us are on that journey yet. Maybe this will be the beginning of that journey. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess for me personally, that's the area in my journey that I feel like I have the longest way to go. I mean, I could be 105 years old and on my deathbed and I still will probably be saying the same thing. But one of the things that I've been working on with my therapist, shout out to therapy, is (laughs) to really break that cycle of people pleasing and the idea of setting boundaries. I know at the beginning of the season, we talked about New Year's resolutions. I said, I'm going to, it's all about boundaries and I'm, I'm working on it, you guys. And I should also say that it's not a one size fits all, right? Like there are certain boundaries that you can put in place for certain sort of tiers of individuals. You know, you have colleagues, you have friends, and then you have immediate family. And like what works for acquaintances and colleagues may not also be directly transferable to the people that you are housing in your innermost circle. But I was talking to my therapist about an individual in my life and how I kind of felt like I was always on the roller coaster. Sometimes they were very validating And I could come to them and I could talk to them and open up and walked away feeling empowered, feeling at least supported, but that there were other times when 
that was not the case. And it was just, you know, if they were going through their own thing or they were having like their own moods or whatever, that they became a very unsafe person, particularly because of the abandonment piece. Again, because of that sort of conditionality, I feel like that a lot of adoptees deal with. And I was talking to my therapist. I said, I I don't know. I don't want to totally lose the relationship, but like, how do I get off the ride? And is that okay? And she said, you know, it's okay to get off the ride. And when you sync up, you know, and the, the roller coaster comes back around, you wave and it's great and you smile and it's fine, but then they leave and they go back around and until, you know, it happens to sync up again and that that's okay, that you don't have to be in the thick of it with everybody all the time to feel like you're connected to people. But there's that kind of coming and going and you can have different temperatures with different people at different times. So that's been really helpful, I think, just to let myself have a little bit of grace and realize that it's not that you need to hold on so tightly, but that, you know, some of the healthiest relationships, right? I think a lot of us can speak to like some of our best friendships are people that can go months, weeks, years without really catching up and you come back together and it's like no time has passed and it's truly great, but you're not stressing about those relationships. You're not agonizing. Oh my gosh, I didn't talk to you. I didn't text you. Like I didn't send you a big enough birthday present. It's just easy and really holding on to the relationships that are like that and trying to cultivate more relationships like that than have a big circle or waste a lot of energy holding on to relationships that aren't that aren't equal, that people aren't putting in the same thought or care that I am. Abby, what about you? How how do you think you're actively combating some of these big, meaty things that we've talked about, validation and relationships? And, you know, what does that look like for you present day? It's definitely, like Shanae said, probably the longest journey I have to go on. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't actually thought about it. This question has really prompted me to reflect on this and these topics and see how I am, if I at all am in my life. I may not be. And it's definitely something that I want to work on because I don't want to continually... I'm definitely getting better at people-pleasing, but that's a little bit of a different aspect. But it does feed into the bigger picture of how that shows up in relationships and how, and in your friendships even. As far as that aspect goes, I'm trying to surround myself with people who I can just be completely authentic with. That's the easiest way for me to do it instead of trying to bring in people where I feel like I have to put on a certain face or act a certain way. So just immediately ruling that out makes it very easy for me and I don't have to do any really thinking as far as that friendship goes. But that's really it. I mean, I haven't really thought about it. I don't really know how much work I am putting into it. It's it's definitely something that's given me some food for thought and something to think about moving forward. Maybe we need to do a to be continued, a follow up with all of yes. us to see how to see how it is. And you know, Benny, I I, I want to hear from you as well. The you know where are you at in your journey as far as combating some of these heavy topics and particularly maybe the people pleasing and the validation. Like, where are you at? 
Oh, I'm I'm in it right now. I'm I'm I, I mean I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Yeah. I mean not 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 the not the cookie cutter or a sugar coat or anything. But I guess the the things that helped me come to this point of being okay with things and just very broad pain stroke is being able to reflect on a lot of things that happen in my life and really make a conscious effort to identify what's most important to me in my life. And I think for me personally, we go back to that isolation where Benny never talks at get togethers or family reunions, or he's out there in Denver. He doesn't text or call. And I think that's where that shame and guilt comes from. It's like, it's not that I don't care. It's one, I don't know how to express this or I'm not feeling great. And I think for me, it's trying to look at the things like my nephews and nieces. My brother and sister both have kids who are teenagers or preteens and even younger. And I just look at them and be like, I don't want to be the uncle that's never there or is not around to be a good role model. And I don't want to go against what we just said. It's like, hey, it's not my fault. I shouldn't beat myself up on that. But I think it just comes around to, wow, I'm reflecting on things. And that's the first step for me. Just being able to open up and say to myself, these things happen in your life and you reacted to them in a certain way and people are not are going not going to understand so instead of trying to ignore it for me what's helping me out is just being able to be okay with jumping out and expressing what's what's going on to the people that I really trust and that's my family and being like hey sorry I haven't been around for so many years but I'm trying I'm trying and it's not because I don't care it's because I didn't know how to express that before and I think that's what's helping me right now is just putting things in priority, reflecting on it and not feeling shameful or guilty that I am the way that I am because I know that that's where the environment I grew up in and quote unquote, trying to remake those connections that are really going to help me build a stronger relationship by being more open and talking about things that are really meaningful and not just surface level. You're a great role model, Benny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So everyone on this call is great. And that's why I love having these conversations every week is because the validation that we all are seeking just feels really authentic here. And hopefully every for the listeners too is that we're we're all doing great. I just feel so inspired and empowered by everyone on this call. Yeah. I, I, I love that piece about the priority, Benny. I think that's a, a great piece of advice for anyone who's starting the journey of trying to unpack these really heavy things is like just getting, you know, really grounding yourself of like what is most important and who am I trying to appease and and what's most important. And to answer my own question of the things that I'm kind of taking on to pull myself out of this cycle of many heavy things what comes to mind for me is, you know, that, that word responsibility again. And, and for me, it's, it's sharing the responsibility and refusing to take all of it on to, on my own. 
Um, I had a girlfriend who once um, said these words to me. Her name is Haley, if she's listening. And it was in regards to relationships. But she said this phrase that really has sat with me in many situations. And it's a very simple phrase. And it's, we all have choices. And what that phrase has allowed me to do is to share the responsibility because what would happen to me so often in these times of people pleasing and seeking validation and and trying to get people to, to understand me is that I would take on the responsibility and, and I would think like, Oh, you know, I, if, if I would have said it differently or if I had chosen a different time, or maybe if I had said it more gently, like maybe they would have heard me, but then I, and, and again, taking the responsibility hundred percent my, on my own. And then I hear that voice of, we all have choices of like, well, you know what? That person could have also chosen to react differently. That person could have also chosen to be a better listener. That person also could have chosen to have come at it with more empathy. And it helped me realize that in all my interactions, the responsibility truly is 50, 50. And I'm really trying to work on, and I hope this is helpful for others who are listening to just take the responsibility of my portion and my portion only. I'm only going to take on 50% of the interaction because that's truly the only part that I am responsible for. And there's somebody else on the other side of the interaction who also has responsibility in the way they carry themselves and the language that they use and how they interact with somebody and to pile on to sharing the responsibility, communication is a big part of it. And, you know, on last season when I joined, when I, you know, I mentioned I joined Starbucks and I come into a new environment and I came in very hot and heavy saying, hey, I'm a Korean adoptee and you need to know that from out the gate. I think that's some of the communication piece too, which is me taking more ownership of my responsibility of that 50%, right? Of Is me communicating and saying, this is where I'm coming from. So again, I'm putting it all out there. And if you choose, back to that choice thing, if you choose to ignore that, if you choose to be insensitive to that, I am not going to take that on. That That is not on me. That is on you. And I have done everything that I can in my power and on my side of the fence of the interaction to communicate where I'm coming from, to communicate things that are sensitive topics. And if you choose not to join me in that, then that's, then that's where I start to look at, is the relationship worth saving or how do I then move forward? But I think for me moving forward, so much of it was taking that responsibility off my shoulders of it's not a hundred percent on me. It is 50, 50. And the triple part on top of that, other than, you know, sharing the responsibility communication, it's kind of what I shared in in these last episodes is that self love and that self-compassion. And I think without the self-love and the self-compassion, which I really struggle with, these things like validation will never truly go away because I have to self-validate. And that goes back to some of the haters and some of the bullying, some of that narrative of like, I'm wanting these people to feel the pain that I felt and I want them to understand the pain that they caused me. But the reality is, is like, they're not real, right? They're, they're not real. That narrative was made up by you, Kara, not by them. And in order for me to truly get on this journey of healing, I have to start self-validating and stop seeking the validation, especially from people who can't relate. And I know that's like, it sounds so elementary, 
and so obvious, but I think that is so much of what's at the pain of in the core of our adoptee experiences that we're constantly trying to seek validation from the people who don't look like us, who can never understand our experience. And it's always going to lead to disappointment. So it's like, how do we start the road to self-validation, to stop the cycle of people pleasing, to stop the cycle of, of code switching and to get to what you had said, Abby, a place of true authenticity and it starts there. I know it sounds like so corny. It's not usually me to be like the uplifting one, but it's true. Like I think the path to authenticity, self-compassion and self-love is truly at the core of dismantling guilt, shame, gaslighting, all the things of like, yeah, I actually don't, you know, you can gaslight me all day because I don't need you to validate my experience. I know that I'm being a victim of racism. I know I'm being a victim of being left at birth and now having to constantly operate from a place of self-preservation. Like it's, it starts within us. Now I'm really like getting into like the yogi and the, and all that in me, but it does, it starts, it starts within us. And I hope that's what, you know, all of this vulnerability that we're showing will help um, cultivate within our community is to just you know, on the other side of authenticity is healing. So how do, how do we get to that place? Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, what is the best piece of advice that you have either received or learned in relation to your own cat identity? So this isn't necessarily advice that I've received, but more so just an experience that I had. So kind of shamelessly to plug the organization that I'm a part of, also known as it's um, an adoptee organization in New York. And I actually, a little backstory. So in fall of last year, I traveled to New York to their 25th anniversary party. And it was my first time attending any of their events. Um, my first time traveling alone, my first time in New York. So it was a big, big trip for me. And I was very nervous. But as soon as I showed up to the event, I knew I had, I don't know, just this idea in my head that I will be okay because there are going to be other CADs there, other Asian adoptees. Like it's going to be a safe space for me. And it was, I mean, everybody was incredibly welcoming. And this is through this experience of meeting all of these other adult adoptees, which other than Kara, I really haven't spent much time around. And it's it was so eye-opening to me because I really could see that we are not alone. We all have so many similar shared experiences and we all have these little quirks, I think, about us and how we interact with other people. So being at a party full of other adult adoptees was really nice because everybody was so kind and so gentle the way they spoke to you. And it was just like, we all had this understanding about each other and about each other's situations. And it was just really nice to be a part of a community like that. And it was something that really impacted me and made me feel better about my adoption and my adoption journey. I love that. There's so much strength in numbers and in community and just I'm so glad that you were able to find a space and hopefully a lot of our listeners can too where we, you know, can go and be in a room of people who just get it and we feel connected to them sort of right out of the gate and we can leave all of, you know, the baggage at the door um, and just exist as people, right? And not as 
adoptees, with whatever other labels that we've sort of inherited from everybody else. You can follow Abby on Instagram at Asian Abby, and make sure to also check out Also Known As. You can find them at alsoknownas.org. You can follow us at Soul Conversations or check out our website, soulconversationspodcast.com. And also in the spirit of community, you can check us out very soon at Con. We'll be presenting a session, so make sure that you get your tickets and go to Denver. Uh, Benny and I will be very excited to have everybody in our neck of the woods, but we all hope to meet you in person. Abby will be there as well, so you can see all four of us if you attend. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, and we hope that you tune in for our next episode. Bye, everyone. <laughs>